Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more information at DesertCityChurch.com. So we um, are in the tail end of our Rooted series where we are looking at what we believe and why it matters. Uh, and the big theme of what we've tried to push through the series is that this is not meant to be informational. If it was meant to be informational, what we had done is probably just printed out a packet of information, handed it to you and said, here, read this while you watch football. It would probably be a better way that you would want to spend your Sunday morning. But there's got to be purpose within what we're, what we're saying beyond information. What we're talking about is not informational as much as it is formational. It shapes and forms who we are, who we see God as, and what that means for the world that we live in. So as we approach each topic, we're looking at our identity, God's identity, and the world's identity. This week, we're looking at that through the lens of evangelism. The question that we're asking this morning is, why and how should I tell others? Now, this is somewhat of a difficult topic to approach because I think that it's received, when we hear the word evangelism, it makes it a little uncomfortable, And we'll delve into what that source of of discomfort comes from. But when we hear this word evangelism, I think that it it brings up maybe some uncomfortable feelings. And it's not necessarily that we feel like there's something wrong with evangelism, but a lot of times we feel like there's something wrong with us. Because when it comes to evangelism, many of us would admit that we're not just boldly going out to strangers and telling them about Jesus on a daily basis. Right? Anyone else? Because like, I know I'm not necessarily doing that. And so if we look at the metrics of our faith, sometimes we feel like we're failing when it comes to evangelism. So we'd rather not talk about it. But this morning, what I would like to do is to strip down all of the baggage that we bring into this room in regards to this word evangelism. And then I would like to see what is the core of the practice of this word and build upon it. And then, what I believe is much more natural, see a new approach or a new lens in which we practice Evangelism. So let's first do this. We're going to strip down this word evangelism to its roots. When we think of evangelism, we typically think of the church. We think of Christianity. Maybe we even relate it to the phrase sharing the good news or the gospel. These are things that we correlate with this idea of evangelism. In fact, many of us even think of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the gospel message of Jesus. And by the sounds of it, because of our familiarity with this idea of evangelism in the church, we're like, the church has the the market of evangelism cornered. Like, this is our language. No one else really uses evangelism. We created it. It's our thing. The truth is, is that we didn't create it. In fact, 
Christianity stole it from the Romans. And so first, before we go into anything further of how to or even why we are to share it with others, we have to look at the history behind it. See, in the first century, in the midst of this vast Roman empire that was growing, was this man born into one of the provinces. His name was Jesus, and we probably are all familiar with who he was and is. But this man named Jesus was born in the midst of the Roman Empire, and uh, what was said about him after his death and resurrection, as these stories started to spread, and shortly after being written down, we started to see this message that was counterintuitive to the empire in which it was placed. As we look at the message of Jesus and we see the Gospels that were written, it's not just telling a story of the Son of God. It's a subversive message that changes the way we see the world. You see, back in the Roman culture, um, as they were spreading out and taking over new land and overcoming new people and bringing them into the empire, all under the, the leadership or the headship of Caesar, as they were doing that, one of their practical tools to spread the word about this Roman Empire, to let people know about how great it was and how great their leader was, was to have these messengers, these messengers that we call Eugalians uh, or, or uh, bearers of good news, messengers of good news. And they would go into the battlefield and as they went into the battlefield, they would see how the Roman soldiers were taking over new land and expanding this empire. And they would come back and they would tell everyone in the different provinces of Rome to say, this is the great news, the good news of the Roman Empire. The Son of God, Caesar, is expanding his kingdom. And they would tell everyone about this good news. It was also translated into gospel it's where we get this very word from, co-oping, uh, stealing from the Romans. And it wasn't just because we couldn't think of a better word. It's because it was with great intentionality. In fact, as we open up one of the Gospels, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we see that he sets up his story about Jesus in this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The words good news here is literally the same word used by the Roman Empire. Now, if you were the most powerful empire on the known earth, and you were the leader of that empire, and you referred to yourself as the Son of God, and you come across some writing saying that there was this other good news about this man who also refers to himself as the Son of God, would you not see that as something coming against what you're trying to build? There is something very subversive about what the Gospels are saying about Jesus in the world that they live in. They say there is this emperor. 
there is a Caesar who claims to be the Son of God, building out his kingdom, that it would expand to the very reaches of the earth, to the very ends of the earth. This Caesar claims to be the Son of God, yet we know of the one who truly reigns even above him. This is something that changes the perspective of how the world works. This changes the mindset, and it's a very dangerous thing to do. You don't challenge Caesar. You don't challenge the Roman Empire, especially as lowly people with no army. This is something very dangerous that we see happening in the midst of the Gospels. Now, not only do we see it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but as the church builds and begins to spread about, with this good news about uh, the provinces of Rome, that everyone begins to hear and, and accept it and come to the knowledge of it. As this is happening, Paul, one of the great leaders in the church, writes back to the church that's in the epicenter of it all in Rome. And he begins to speak to them about what it means to be saved. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says this to them. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, as a 21st century Christian, as I read these words, I think, oh, wait, so I don't have to do the whole church thing, I don't have to go serve people, I don't have to feed the hungry, I don't have to... All I had to do was say some things and believe it in my heart? Awesome, I'm going to go home. But Paul means something much more dramatic here. First of all, he says that your whole paradigm of how you see the world has to change. Where you saw Caesar as Lord, you now see Jesus as Lord. Where you believed that he had some sort of deity, now you see the true deity who overcame death. He says to them to proclaim that Jesus is Lord in the epicenter of Rome where Caesar resides. Now, when Caesar in Rome, where maybe some of these Christians would encounter him, when he would walk into a room, those who were in the room would recognize him by standing and saying, Caesar is Lord. Now, if you can imagine as a first century Christian being in that room and just reading the words of Paul, and now Caesar walks in, what Paul is literally saying is that you would proclaim, while all others say Caesar is Lord, that you would say Jesus is Lord. Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ is subversive. It overcomes the powers that be to show the way the world truly is. To be come. This is the gospel of Jesus. It's a subversive message. It's more than just saying words or believing something in your heart. This is a very dangerous step. The Christian gospel message is subversive, and over thousands of years, it has been the most potent when it's coming from the bottom up. It hasn't done very well when it's the top leadership coming down. It's most potent, it's most powerful when it comes from the bottom and it works its way up. And I would indeed say this, the, the gospel of Christ is relentlessly subversive. 
It uproots man-made constructs from the soil to bring about the eternal kingdom of God filled with a redemptive love. I know that's kind of flowery language, so let me put it this way. Imagine a garden bed filled with strong stock plants, plants that, that are not easily overcome And all of a sudden, from the bottom, in the soil, grows these weeds. And they overcome the plants that exist and overtake the garden. This is what it means to be subversive. And the hope is that what comes up is a better fruit, a fruit that gives life instead of death. Because when we look at the Roman Empire and we look at the empires of our world, as we look at man-made kingdoms, they all come back to the building of self. They all come back to using oppressive nature in order that it would benefit the one, the greater of these. But instead, the kingdom of God comes in and becomes selfless. It becomes something more than the selfish construct. It becomes more than just a self or selfish object. It becomes the kingdom of God. This is the why we should tell others. This is why we are evangelist messengers, because we believe the gospel, this good news of the Son of God, who is king of an eternal kingdom, who brings new life to those in dead places. It restores the broken. It clothes the naked, and it feeds the hungry. It heals the blind. It takes those at the bottom and values them as a top. And those who strive to be at the top to fall to the bottom. You see, in the subversive kingdom of God, the roots of oppression are severed by justice. In places of violence, we find peace. Where there's selfish desire, it is overcome by selfless love. This is the gospel message. This is why we're a part of it, because we look at the world around us and we see the brokenness, as Paul says, the groaning earth. And we look at all that is wrong or out of place and our desire is to see it made right. And we're willing to do whatever it takes. We have to start there. If we're not going to be able to agree with the why, then there's no reason to move on to the how, because the how is going to be in vain. But if we truly believe, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that there is this gospel message that trumps any other good news that is out there, if we believe like Paul believes, and we are willing to even give our lives to this idea that Christ is Lord above all else, once we agree on the why, we can move on to the how because it becomes relevant to seeing this kingdom come to be here on earth to overcome the Roman Empire, to overcome these man-made kingdoms. We begin to see that there is something more to life than what we can build for ourselves. But we realize that the world around us can change and be made better And that God has a plan not only to make it better, but to completely make it new again. This is the gospel that we see. So now that we know the why, the question becomes how. And that brings us back to this difficult and uncomfortable word, evangelism. 
Why I say it's uncomfortable is because many of us grew up in church with this idea of evangelism being one method in which we converted people to come into the church. And it was almost this transactional conversation, right? That we're taught, okay, here are your scripts, here are your word tracks, almost like a sales pitch, and you're going to go out to individuals, many you don't know, some you know, and you're to have this conversation with them. And by the end, you are to ask them if they will accept Jesus into their heart. You will ask them if they'll give their lives to Jesus. And if so, you met your quota, right? You, got, you hit your metrics, for the vast, vast majority of us, that's not a natural approach to evangelism. That's why we don't really do it. In fact, if we had performance reviews in the church like we do in our jobs, that would be like the one thing we would all hope wouldn't come up. Because we all know we would come up short. So the problem, the question is, is the problem with us or the model that we use? And I believe, even though the model works for some, the problem is that we haven't been introduced the right model. And it's not really even a model. It's just becoming intentional. So I believe there are two, uh, me- or two components to this method that will f- kind of break down. Um, it would be the same components in this traditional idea of an A-B conversation of me trying to convert you to Christianity but it's going to take a different approach on ease. First will be content, and then secondly, the vehicle. Uh, In a book that they recently wrote on parenting, Rob and Kristen Bell uh, spoke about these two methods of parenting that they saw. First, one that they observed, and secondly, the one that they applied. And the first one that they observed, and it deals with kids making mistakes or failing, coming up short, maybe making the wrong decision, and the response to the, to the first child, the parent says, why do you always do that? Has any parent ever caught yourself saying that? Why do you never turn in your assignments? Why do you always hit your sister? Why do you always fill in the blank? Why do you always make that mistake? And what it does to a child is it says, you're broken. There's something wrong within you, but I don't have any answers for you. I can't tell you how to fix it. And it leaves a child in the midst of an identity crisis. I know there's something wrong with me. I know for some reason I can't seem to turn in my assignments. I know that there's something inside of me that's making me want to hit my sister. Uh, There's something there underneath, but I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to fix it. So I'll either perpetuate it or live in a life of guilt. The second approach The one that they have applied to their family, which I think is beneficial even in the mindset of evangelism, is this. When your child makes a mistake, when they screw up, sit them down and you say, that's not how our family does things. That's not how we do this. That's not how a hagedon acts. And what it does is it, it notices that there is something off, that there's something that, that uh, has gone off of the path that, that they are intended for, but it also recognizes that they're a part of something. And there, there's something for them to live up into. That, that they're a part of this 
family, that they have an identity, and although they may have made a mistake that has consequences, at the same time, that's not who they are. Who they are is a part of this family, and we teach them how to grow and live up into what that name means. Now, the Bells didn't create this. This isn't their new thing. In fact, we see it applied in Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself used it with one of his disciples at that time named Simon, who we would know to become Peter. In fact, it's at the very time that Jesus tells Simon, you are Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, he says these words, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter meaning rock. Now, if you know Peter, and if you've read some stories about Peter, you know he's not very qualified for this title. Peter is kind of a bumbling fool somewhat, and he's eager to try to step in and do things, but he consistently makes mistakes or makes quick snap judgments and does the wrong thing. And it would be almost like Jesus could have been like, why do you always like at the transfiguration, why do you always, like getting out of the boat and trying to walk in water, why do you always? Later on in the, in the Gospels, Peter cuts off a guy's ear. Why do you always cut off their ears? Like, why do you always do these things? No, he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you don't know, you are a rock. And there is a day coming when my global mission, this kingdom, we're spreading this good news. You're going to be the rock of what we're doing. And what we see become the church is built upon this rock. And Peter becomes this instrumental leader, even at Pentecost, giving this sermon where thousands come into the church. And we see it grow daily from there and spread out further and further. Jesus gives him a name to live up into. And in the same way, then Peter, <coughs> excuse me, learning from Jesus, goes to his church and begins to write them a letter. And many churches are to receive this letter. And he writes to them, probably could write, why do you guys always do this? But he says this instead in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may, pro may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I don't know about you, but there are very few times in my life where I refer to myself as a royal priesthood. <laughs> there are very few times where I see myself as part of a holy nation. But I hear the words that God speaks into his people and says, I see so much more in you. Where you fail, I see so much more. Where you come up short, I know you have so much more in you. You might have diverted at this moment, but you are a part of the royal priesthood. 
you are a saint. You are a part of a holy nation. You are a part of God's possession. Sure, we don't live like that as my adopted family, but, but you are my adopted son. You are my adopted daughter. Now, he says this to believers. But I also believe it applies to evangelism in this way. The content of evangelism is proclaiming the image of God in all people. Evangelism in the content which is contained within it is proclaiming the image of God in all people. It's essentially proclaiming to people, you are made in the image of God. The image of God is within you. Now live up into it. It is seeing value in all people, no matter where they stand in their life, to say there is something in you that, that you may not see yet in yourself, and you may be questioning your identity and questioning who you are supposed to be, but I see something in you of such great value that you are to be adopted into a holy family, the son or daughter of the Most High God. There is something within you you may not comprehend yet, but God is going to call out of you. Or we could take the more traditional route. Why do you keep doing that? What is wrong with you? We could go through a laundry list of mistakes that people make, and we could focus on that to say, well, you definitely need a Savior. Or we can say, there's a Savior who came before you had done anything wrong. Who bought you before you, you could mess up? Who saw you as priceless to the point of death before you could ever make any decisions? There is someone who has adopted you and said you have great value. The content of our evangelism matters. But then secondly, the vehicle matters as well. Because really, if you've been listening to the message, what you're probably not anticipating here is another script or another word track to memorize so you can tell people that they're valued. We want to know how do we become intentional in our lives. And the first thing is to be aware of this. Your life has rhythm. Jared mentioned this earlier before we got into the message. We all have rhythm. There is a natural order to it. The earth revolves. That gives us this identity of rhythm. But even in, inside of us, we've wanted this order, the sense of order in our life. So we started creating calendars, and we wanted to know minutes to days to hours, or excuse me, to hours to days to weeks to years to decades to centuries to millennia. We want to have a natural sense of time passing, and we want to understand this rhythm. So we wake up, and we go to work or school, and we come home, and we rest, and we wake up, and hopefully it's not still Monday, but we go back to work, and then we continue this rhythm, and hopefully at some point we catch our breath. It's why we gather every Sunday, because there's a natural rhythm to our faith as well. There's a cadence to it, this repetitiveness that, that isn't redundant but is always moving forward, and we appreciate this idea of rhythm. Your life has rhythm. First, be aware of that. Secondly, realize that in the midst of your rhythm, there is always something being proclaimed to those who interact or encounter you through your rhythm. There is some gospel that is being communicated. The question is, what gospel are people hearing from your life? 
The life that you lead, the decisions that you make, the character you have, the integrity that you have, what does it say to people? When people encounter you and they walk away, what do they feel? Hope or burdened? Do they feel chaotic or peace? When people encounter us, what gospel do they walk away with? You don't need to memorize scripts. You don't need the word track. The conversation isn't a formula. The life you already live has the possibility of reaching many. The question becomes, what do we do about it when we wake up? How intentional are we in the midst of our rhythm? I believe the greatest way to become intentional is to be incarnational. Now, if that word sounds foreign to you, it essentially means this in our Christian faith, embodying the qualities of Christ. In my life, when I encounter other people, when our rhythms overlap, they have an opportunity to encounter Christ. Am I claiming to be the Son of God? No, please don't hear that. You have encountered the Son of God, and in doing so, can be the meeting place for Christ and others. When we begin to live and shape and form our lives as Christ lived, we begin to be this outlet of this kingdom of God that others may encounter his kingdom and be transformed by it. When we live incarnationally, we're embodying the qualities of Christ so that others may be transformed. We hear the words that Christ taught and we apply them. When we hear feed the hungry, guess what? We feed the hungry. When we hear clothe the naked, we clothe the naked. When we see Jesus reach out to the marginalized and the least of these, guess what we do? We reach out to the marginalized and the least of these. When we see that Christ came, that all may feel hope. We bring hope into our lives that others may experience it. When we see broken people, we give them the opportunity to become restored. When we see that people feel unloved, we offer the love of God, which is eternal. In our rhythms, where we are, we offer whatever it is that people need that Christ offers. We give them the qualities of Christ, knowing that it transforms lives. And in this, we begin this track of evangelism. We begin to proclaim God first with our actions. And then I believe it naturally comes that there's a conversation. There's something different about you. Um, I walked in and my life was chaotic and I left and for some odd reason I feel at peace. What is that? We begin to proclaim the gospel then in words. We are confident in this, that Christ came at just the right time in the midst of an empire which is spreading its arms and oppressing all that it can. And from the top, they began to build their empire, but from the bottom came one, meek and mild, born into essentially a food trough, becoming the king of all. That is the why. 
And the how is to get behind him and begin to follow. And I guarantee you, it won't be about memorizing methods or word tracks. It'll be simply responding to people to why you live the way you do. I would lastly encourage you in this way. Don't do it alone. We've taught people to go out just by themselves, and I think maybe we thought, well, send them out as individuals, that means everyone's having conversations at once, it's more people we can multiply, get more people in here. There is power in community. Your small group, dinner parties, whatever kind of gathering, open your doors, and as a community, incarnationally love people as Christ loves and begin to see what happens. See what movement comes from it. See how much more natural it is than trying to go out and just win souls through debate and systematic theology. I believe you'll begin to see a true transformation. Just one evidence of that is Jesus' words in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's just get that right first. Let's love one another and allow others to be around it. And they'll begin to see this man named Jesus, who's the son of God. So as the band comes back up, this is what I would ask for you to walk away with. Leave the baggage of, sorry, I have like a Midwest accent, so bag sounds weird when I say it. Leave the baggage behind. This baggage that evangelism is about meeting quotas of converts to prove you truly love Jesus. Leave that behind. Unless you're really good at it, I guess, that's fine. But, but for the vast majority of us, leave behind this idea of the independent, transactional conversation to try to get someone to sign on a dotted line. And instead, walk away with this. Evangelism is a proclamation of the kingdom of God overtaking a broken world with love, mercy, and justice so that God's creation may be reconciled, brought back to him, and then be made new. Just do it through your rhythm. Do it through your life. Become intentional on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, in the rhythm of your life, find that intentionality. We're going to actually close. I asked Tim last week, I said, you know, we talk about what, what do you want to close with? And I thought, well, talking about evangelism, can we do this little light of mine? So I hope you don't mind. <laughs> this morning we're going to close our time with this very simple song. And I, my hope is, is that the simplicity of this childlike song will take away all that we have in our mind of what evangelism is and return us to the simple root. And we have a father who loves us desperately and wants us to tell the other children about his love. Let's go before him. Communion tables are open to you. We allow for anyone who confesses that Christ is Lord and believes in their heart that God rose his son from the grave to partake in this moment where we remember what Christ did upon the cross that brought about this kingdom.